Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've been teaching a series uh, for the last number of weeks on uh, the prayers of the church is the title that we've given it. We're using Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 as a, as a beginning point, a text scripture, golden text, if you will, for, uh, for this series. Paul, after having told the church and us as well uh, to put on the armor of God, tells us what that armor is for. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and all supplication for all saints. Um, the fact that the Bible says here in praying always with all prayer, other translations say all kinds of prayer. Another translation says different, uh, all manner of prayer. It indicates that there are different kinds of prayer that he's talking about. If that were not the case, he would have just said praying always with prayer and supplication. But he makes mention of all prayer. So even with the, without the other translations, you could understand that he's talking about different kinds of prayer. So we've identified what some of those are. And um, we've been teaching for the last several weeks on, uh, on supplication specifically. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 is going to give us some information about what we want to talk about tonight. Paul's writing to Timothy and he said, I exhort therefore that first of all, put first things first. He's saying, Timothy, put your prayer life first. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, he identifies the men he's talking about, for kings and all those that are in authority. For this purpose, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Notice that uh, God wants us to live a quiet and peaceable life. He goes on to say, who will have all men, here's the will of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know if you know this or not. A lot of times people think that uh, uh, hard times and, and times of war and different things like that will, will cause great uh, uh, interest in evangelism because people get afraid and, and things like that. But there's more evangelistic work done in times of peace than in any other time. It's times of peace that allow the gospel to go forth freely, not times of war. So anyway, God's intent is for the church to pray different kinds of prayer one of the prayers that he mentions here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is intercessions. Now, notice intercessions is not mentioned in, in, in uh, Ephesians 6.18. Now, why is that? Because Ephesians 6.18 is talking about you praying for yourself and for other believers. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Ephesians 6.18 is talking about how the church needs to pray for the church. But now here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's talking about praying for all men, specifically kings and those that are in authority. Well, you know as well as I do that the majority of people in, in positions of governmental authority are not saved. So if we're uh, left with only a prayer to pray for the saved, those that are already believers and have committed their lives to Jesus, a part of the family of God, how do we pray for the unsaved? Well, that's where intercession comes in. Now, the word intercession is kind of a difficult word. Because it literally means, if you look it up in the Strongs, it literally means an interview, a supplication, or a prayer. Well, if it's an interview, a supplication, and a prayer, and that's all there is to it, then why would, why would it be distinguished from prayers and or supplications? It's got to be something different, doesn't it? Notice that, um, uh, well, you might uh, do well to turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Paul writing to the church about how to handle your own problems and so forth. He said, be careful for nothing, 
verse 6, Philippians 4, verse 6, Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Notice the list contains three of the four. It omits intercession. Why? Because it's talking about you praying for you. You don't intercede for yourself. Well, if we can't identify the, the, uh, the meaning from the, uh, the, the words used itself, from the Greek language, if that doesn't help us much, then we're going to have to go back and, and find out from use what is this thing called intercession and how is it supposed to be used in the Scripture. The, the word intercession is used uh, three times. This word used is uh, used three times in Scripture. Uh, well, I'm sorry, it's used twice in Scripture. One intercession here in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and another time it's translated prayer. But the root word that this word comes from is used five times and it always is used regarding intercession. But every time you look it up, it's kind of a circular definition. Intercession means to intercede. Well, what does that mean? If you don't know what, uh, what it's talking about, if you don't know what it's referring to, then how does that help you? So let's go back and look. Um, uh, the New Testament doesn't help us much as far as definitions are concerned. So let's look at the Old Testament and see if we can get an idea of what intercession is and how it works. Look with me to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. I'll read verses 30 and 31, the end of the chapter. Here's God speaking in the Old Testament. And please understand that the, the, um, the Old Testament is comprised of the history of God's dealing with the Jews. But more than that, it has an overall theme of trying to identify from God's perspective, trying to identify for man that he's in desperate need of a Savior. Everything about the Old Testament is to show man how much he needs a Savior. He can't do it on his own. That's what the law was about. It's what the prophets were about, calling people to God because you can't do it on your own and so forth. So Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, here's God speaking. And he said, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. That indicates that the picture is that something is broken down. That they should, that uh, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. A man's going to do that. And stand in the gap before me for the land. That I should not destroy it, but I found none. So here's God saying, if I can find somebody to fill the hole. To make up the difference, the lack. He's talking, he uses two different word pictures. He's using a picture of a hedge that's broken down. If you've got bushes in your yard and you've got a line of bushes along the wall or something like that, and one of those bushes die, then all of a sudden you've got an empty spot. Well, you want to put something in there to fill up that empty spot. Well, God's saying that that empty spot is necessary so that he not destroy the land. In other words, there's a continuous thing that he calls a hedge. It's a chain. It's a connection between God and man that was necessary to keep God's wrath from being poured out upon mankind. He goes further to say, I look for a man to stand in the gap. Now it's going to give us a little bit clearer picture. The gap is between man and God. We know that. It's already been identified by the other words that, uh, uh, that are used in the Scripture, in this uh, verse of Scripture. But what he's saying is the way to fill that gap, and the only way to fill that gap, is for a man to stand in between God and mankind. But he said, I couldn't find one. Now, why couldn't he find one? Because Jesus hadn't yet come. Here's the Old Testament revelation from God's point of view and God's perspective that man was, is without hope unless there's somebody that comes and fills in the void between him, him, God, and mankind. So it goes on to say in verse 30, Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. 
Their own way have I recompensed upon their head, saith the Lord God. Now notice that last phrase. That's important. Their own way. In other words, here's payment for their own wrongdoing. What's he talking about? He's saying without someone to do something on man's behalf, man is destined for the wrath of God and destruction. Well, it's easy for us, knowing what we know about the Scripture, to know who that man is. It's Jesus, right? Look with me also to uh, another verse of Scripture. Look with me over to um, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 16. Speaking of God, and it said, And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Now, this word intercessor from the Hebrew really doesn't help you. It means to impinge by importunity to come between. So I guess it's talking about the same thing as standing in the gap in Ezekiel 22. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, somebody to come between him and mankind. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head and put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. What this is saying, what this verse of Scripture is saying is that God looked for a man to fill the gap, to join himself, God and mankind together. But man couldn't do it. Why? Because man is sinful. So he took his own right arm, his own arm to bring salvation. He's talking about Jesus. Now, folks, it's, uh, it's pretty common. Uh, maybe it's not as common as it was maybe 20 years ago, but... It's, uh, it still just seems to be common in some circles for people to call themselves intercessors. But the only time the Bible really speaks of intercessors, the intercessors is, is talking about Jesus. Now, what's the purpose for this intercessor? Well, we saw in um, Ezekiel chapter 22 that it was to stay the destruction of God upon mankind, the destruction that mankind was rightly due because of their sin. Here in uh, Isaiah 59... It's talking about an intercessor being important to bring salvation. Look with me over to uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 66. We'll turn over just a couple of of, uh, chapters since we're close by. Isaiah chapter chapter 66, verse, uh, where do we want to start? Uh, Let's start in verse 8. We'll just put verse 8 out. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now this word travailed is interesting because it's used several times in Scripture as uh, connected with bringing to the birth. A pregnant woman giving travail or going through travail to give birth to a child. Well, you know as well as I do that the only reason God wanted to unite himself with mankind is so he'd have a family. You know as well as I do that the whole purpose for salvation was to unite man and God so that we could be children of God. Everything about Jesus, everything about what Jesus did, everything about Jesus uh, standing in the gap, making up the hedge, was not only to stay destruction but so that we could be children of God. God spoke through the prophets. Isaiah is one of them that he used. And he spoke clearly saying that we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, there's no only one way that that could happen. It wasn't through the ritual sacrifice. It was only through the shed blood of Jesus. So we can see then that these things work together. Intercessor, the intercession that Jesus made, if you'll allow me to say it that way, the intercession that Jesus made was to bring a family into being. 
That's what this verse is talking about in Isaiah 66. God's not looking for a nation, a physical or a geographic nation, even though Israel is uh, the remnant or the, um, uh, the descendants of Abraham who had the original covenant with God. God's looking for a spiritual family. And it's not limited to just the geographic territory of Israel. But don't, don't get me wrong. God still has made promises to Israel, promises of protection. I believe a lot of those promises are being carried out now with the war that's going on now uh, with, between Hamas and the attacks and so forth. There's a lot of reports that are coming out where rockets that should have hit one place were turned and changed and uh, changed directions and, and stuff like that. Even the, the uh, servicemen and, and even the terrorists on both sides of the issue, the, the terrorists are reporting. In one case, I saw reported that they said their God's changing the, the flight of our rockets. Well, that's good to know. Amen. So God's still doing things because he cares for natural Israel. But God's plan was always spiritual Israel. Paul talks a lot about this to the Galatians. In speaking to the Galatians, he said not all, well, he said, speaking to the Romans, he said not all Israel is Israel. In other words, he's saying not all the descendants of Abraham are the family of God. That's dependent on Jesus. So we see that the, the, the intercession or the standing in the gap that was done was for the sake of salvation, God's family coming forth. Can you see that? Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to Hebrews. Uh, let me get the reference here. Look with me over to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25. It says, Wherefore he, speaking of Jesus, wherefore he is able also to save them, it's talking about salvation, save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. Well, salvation is based on Jesus, isn't it? Any other way of salvation other than coming to God through Jesus and his uh, work on the cross? Of course not. Wherefore he, God, is able also to save them to the uttermost. Who's them that he's talking about? Those that come unto God by him, seeing he, Jesus, ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, folks, here's something that we need to know that, that uh, helped me a lot. When, as far as uh, understanding prayer and how God uses this and so forth. And that is this. Intercession is not, not uh, always an action. Intercession is more of a position than anything else. We read in several scriptures, God said, I looked for a man to make up the hedge, a man to stand in the gap. Well, he's not talking about doing something. He's talking about being somewhere. He said, I sought for a man to be an intercessor so that I could stay destruction and bring them salvation. But he couldn't find anybody. So he had to use his own arm to bring salvation. Well, we think of intercession as prayer only and prayer alone. But prayer is always based on, in every case, whether it's no matter what kind of prayer it is, a successful or effective prayer is always based on the position that you pray from. It's not just the, pr the prayer itself. It's not just the words itself. It's what's behind those words. For example, we talked about the prayer of faith. You can say the right words to pray the prayer of faith, but if your heart doesn't agree with it, it has no spiritual power. Right? Because faith is believing in the heart and speaking with the mouth. If you just say the words, but your heart's not behind it, there's no spiritual force of faith behind it, you're not going to get any results. So prayer is always, effective prayer is always based on the position that you pray from. I heard uh, uh, somebody say something a long time ago that, uh, that really helped me, and that is they said, no matter what problem you're facing, always pray down at the problem. 
because Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God, says that God has raised us to be seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named. See, so many times I think people are praying from underneath their problems. It's like the weight of the world is on top of them and they're praying that God will lift it off of them. Well, that's not the position to pray from. Pray down at the problem. Yeah, I'm being attacked. Yeah, the devil's rearing his head. But I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. And whatever is going on in my life, I have authority over it because it's under my feet. Well, you start praying like that and you won't get so wound up about things that are going on. There are very few emergency situations when you realize you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Don't worry, you're never going to catch God unawares. Tell him about something that's going on and he say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Are you sure that's really going on? See, prayer is about position. Intercession is about position. Here where it says Christ ever liveth to make intercession for the saints, for those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, it's not talking about him praying. Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of God in prayer. If he was praying, that would mean something's not finished, wouldn't it? Yet the whole reason that he's seated means that the work is finished. So what's there to pray about? No, the Holy Ghost inspires Christians to pray here. He may inspire you and me to pray for other Christians and will. But Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Well, what is he doing? He's sitting there as the proof that the gap between man and God, which was created by sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, has been filled and done away with. Remember Jesus' um, prayer in John chapter 17, the night that he was betrayed? Everything about that prayer is that they would be one in us. Jesus praying to the Father about the disciples who represent the church. He, he said, and not just for these only, but all those that shall believe on us, believe on me through thy word. So that's everybody. The apostles and the prophets are the foundations of the church. So he's praying for you in John chapter 17. And he's praying that they would be one in me even as I am one with you. What's happening? God's taking one, or Jesus is taking one hand on God because he is the son of God. He's taking the other hand on man, laying the other hand on man because he's the son of man. And he makes complete union through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. For that reason, if intercession is standing in the gap, you can't possibly intercede for a Christian because there's no gap. There's no separation. That's why intercession is left out of both Philippians 4, 6 and Ephesians six eighteen, because he's talking about the church praying for itself, either literally or figuratively. One Christian praying for another Christian or a Christian praying for himself specifically. There's no gap. Therefore, intercession, if it's standing in the gap, if it's joining to, intercession has to be praying for the unsaved. And that goes back to Isaiah 66. When Zion travailed, she gave birth. Here's that intercession at, at work. It's saying when Zion, which is a type of the church, when Zion travailed or interceded, then new births came to pass. New births came into being. Salvations occurred. Can you see that? Now, uh, now turn with me over to um, Romans chapter 8. Because I want to bring another point out here. And then, uh, then we'll back up and, and talk a little bit. 
I don't want to swamp you with scriptures and, and just leave it at that. But notice here in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It's talking about, uh, well, maybe we ought to back up. Let's back up to verse 20. No, no, no. We'll back up to verse 18. This is uh, Paul talking about us being children and joint heirs with God in the preceding verses. Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, the creature means the creation, it means the earth. It's not talking about people, it's talking about the earth. For the earnest expectation of the, the, the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. This word manifestation means revealing or removing of a cover. So Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, the earth is waiting for the church to be revealed in glory. Now, I personally believe that's the rapture. And when Jesus comes back to set up his millennial reign on the earth. But there's other ways you can interpret that. But we know that the earth is, is uh, in turmoil, the creation itself, which remember the earth was not created as a house for sin. It was not created to have a curse put on it. Adam and Eve accomplished that through their transgression. The earth got the raw end of the deal. The earth was, and, and I don't mean to talk about the earth like it's a living thing, you know, Mother Earth and, you know, save the planet and all that kind of stuff. I'm all pres- for preserving what we've got, but, you know, some people go a little off the edge there, I think. But I'm not talking about it as if it is a living thing. However, anything that God creates has to have God's stamp on it, which is life. So even though the earth doesn't have a personality, it, does, it is a living thing. And it says that it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, now weren't people already saved at the time Paul's writing this? Sure they were. Paul's saved. The people he's writing to are saved and spirit-filled. They've experienced the power of God in great ways. So he's got to be talking about something more than just people being saved. He's got to be talking about the removing of this earthly cover. I believe the removing of the cover is talking about is the flesh where we receive our redeemed bodies. That's what the earth's waiting for. The earth's waiting for God to take over control again and for this curse upon the earth to be lifted. The curse that came because of Adam's sin to be lifted once and for all. Well, that happens during the millennial reign. After the rapture, after the, the, the receiving of our redeemed bodies, there's a seven-year period where the tribulation takes place. And after that, God comes down, Jesus comes down, sets up his earthly kingdom on the, here on the earth and rules with a rod of iron, which means not everybody left on the earth at that point in time is on his side. He didn't have to rule his own family with a rod of iron, but he's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. But at that time, the earth says, hip, hip, hooray. The right ones are back in charge. That's what this is talking about. For the earnest expectation of the creation or the creature waiteth for the manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly. The earth didn't sin. But by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. That's a, a really poor translation. It says, a better translation is, says this. The earth was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected it, yet there is hope. Because the creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Notice it's delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's all about the family of God. 
For we know that the whole creation, again, it's talking about the earth, groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Folks, I believe that a lot of things that the people on the earth are, are calling man-made problems, global warming perhaps, or climate change or some of that stuff, I think it's the earth groaning. And I don't care how you, what laws you pass against SUVs, it's not going to change the earth from groaning. It's just a simple fact. If things are happening because God said they're happening, it doesn't matter what man does to try to fix it. There is no fix. And not only they, verse 23, and not only they, meaning the creation, but ourselves also. Our, ourselves also what? We're travailing in pain too. We're groaning waiting for the, for the rapture. Aren't we? Man, I sure am. The more I see things going on in the world around me, the more I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit. Notice there is yet still more to come. And that is the redemption of our bodies, which have the first fruit of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit. In other words, here's what that adoption is. Here's what that revealing is. The redemption of our body. Well, that takes place when Jesus comes back, doesn't it? So that's what we're waiting for. That doesn't mean we're sitting on our hands not doing anything waiting. It means we're occupying till he comes, but looking forward to that day. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Hope's always future. So there's a hope left to us. That hope is the redemption of the body, the rapture. For what a man seeth, what does he yet hope for? We know it hadn't taken place. Now, some people were preaching that the rapture had already taken place, that they were in the middle of the tribulation because of the persecution against the church at that point in time and so forth. And so Paul is kind of taking a a little side journey on some of this as well. He's saying it hadn't already happened. Don't worry. But if we hope for that which we don't see, then do we with patience wait for it? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, infirmity here means weakness. What weakness is he talking about? He's saying because we have a hope for Jesus coming back, a hope for the redemption of our body, a hope for, the, for things being made right here even on the earth. Likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Here's the infirmity, the weakness that he's talking about. For we know not what to pray for as we ought. Notice he did not say we don't know what to, we don't know to pray. He didn't even say we don't know what to pray for. He said we don't know what to pray for like we ought to know. Or need to know in order to pray the perfect will of God. Can you see that? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself. Notice it's King James says itself. He's not an it. The Spirit himself maketh intercession for us. With groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, folks, remember that we said intercession can certainly be prayer, but the Holy Ghost isn't praying. The Holy Ghost does not pray. Why would the Holy Ghost need to pray? He's part of the Godhead. Who's he going to pray to? The Godhead that he's a part of? Does that mean that God is working in cross purposes with the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost is trying to talk him into doing something that he's not going to do otherwise? I hear rusty gears turning. I want to let them work their way loose here first. 
See, we get this idea that because the word says intercession, the, the word intercession is used in connection with prayer, that all of a sudden that means intercession is always, uh, is always prayer, and it's not. Intercession, especially where God is concerned, where Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father is concerned, isn't talking about prayer. couldn't because that would mean the work's not finished. That, that would mean that he didn't finish the work of God when he was here on the earth and raised from the dead. So he has to now complete the unfinished work by praying at his right hand. I guess it's convenient for him to be able to pray since he's right there close to God and God can hear him, right? Well, of course not. So what does it mean? It means position. And notice how many things the Bible says about the position that Jesus now has. He's been raised and seated with the Father at his right hand. He's been given a name that's above every name. All power is given unto him. Literally, all authority is given unto him both in heaven and in earth. So he commissioned the church to take it and use it in the earth. Why? Because of the position that he has. When he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, he said to him, I have the keys of hell and death, which means he didn't have them before. So it's a different position for him now than when he was here on the earth. Now that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Well, if Jesus, being part of the Godhead, he ever ever liveth to make intercession, that would have to mean position. What would it mean for the Holy Ghost? Who's part of the same Godhead? Would have to mean position. In other words, it simply means this. It simply means the Holy Ghost fills up the gap that we need filled. What gap? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Our lack of knowledge. He fills up that gap by what? By telling us what to pray for? By showing us and revealing to our minds so that we know all things? No. Here's how he fills up the gap. Here's how he joins us together with God in that which is missing. What's missing? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. So what does he give us? Groanings which cannot be uttered. Groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, P.C. Nelson, who was the foremost uh, uh, authority on the Greek language of his day, said of this, he told a group of ministers that Brother Hagin was a part of, he said of this, uh, this verse of Scripture that the best translation he could give for the words, the Greek words that are used, translated groanings which cannot be uttered, was simply this, God talk. But the fact that groanings are spoken of earlier... The earth is groaning, we're groaning, waiting for the redemption of our body and so forth. It's good, in my opinion, that the, that the idea of groanings is given there because it shows intensity. It shows that this is not just some casual thing, but it's something that's prayed from the heart because it's given by the Holy Ghost. But whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's groaning, whether it's travailing, when the Zion travailed, she gave forth her children. No matter what it comes out as, no matter how it, how it uh, sounds, and that's really not the important thing because we shouldn't be focusing all our attention on what we sound like anyway. Sure shouldn't be focusing our attention on what other people sound like. We should be focusing our attention on what the Holy Ghost gives us to say and or do, in my opinion. Wouldn't you agree? So it shows intensity. But there's an interesting phrase about this uh, in this verse of Scripture. Where it says, likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. This word helps, helpeth means something more than just helps. It certainly is a help, but you'll understand when we break it down. It means several words together. It means to take hold together with against. Likewise, the Spirit also takes hold together with us against our infirmities. Takes hold together with us against our infirmities. Now, here's the point I want you to see. And that is this. Intercession can only be made when the Holy Ghost gives it to you. 
In other words, you can't just decide, I'm going to stand in the gap for everybody in, in our city that's unsaved. Well, that would only work if you could overcome their will to, to get saved, wouldn't it? I mean, the only reason they're not saved now is they haven't exercised their will toward it. Now, whether the, the why that they haven't exercised their will is, is, could be any number of things. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they're ignorant of Jesus. But others may have heard of Jesus and just never chosen to receive him or accept him as the Lord and Savior. What are you going to do? Are you going to pray because you want to? You're going to pray that God would save them no matter what they want? Well, if that's possible, why hadn't God done that already? We already read over in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it's God's will that everybody be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Did we? Well, so then how are we going to take authority over somebody else's will and get them saved whether they want to or not? You can't. But there are those that are ready. There are those that are on the verge. Now, I don't know who those are. Do you? Unless somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm ready to get saved. How would you know? And if they did say that, the time to pray for them to get saved has long passed. Tell them about Jesus and get them saved. It's not a time for prayer. It's a time to re- to, for them to receive. Do you understand my point? Well, then who is going to know? There's only one that will know, and that's the Holy Ghost. So he can lead you into this. Now turn with me over to Galatians chapter... Um, well, before we leave Romans chapter 8, I guess I better read verse seven, 27 because intercession is in that verse 2. And he that searches the hearts, that's God, knoweth what, the mind of the, what is the mind of the Spirit... Because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So it's not the Holy Ghost praying, trying to get God to do something that he wasn't in the mind to, uh, didn't have a mind to otherwise. It's the Holy Ghost that's giving intercession, taking hold together with us against the things we don't know how to pray as we ought to know. Because that's the will of God. In other words, the Holy Ghost gives intercession from time to time or on the occasion, whenever he does, because it is the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are you out there? That's the work of the Holy Ghost. Well, if it's the work of the Holy Ghost, we ought to believe for him to do it then, shouldn't we? Now turn with me over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We've talked about travailing. We've talked about what the word says about groanings and what it means and so forth. We looked at uh, Isaiah 66. Verse 8, when Zion prevailed, they brought forth their children. Talking about bringing forth the family of God. Notice in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is, uh, and, and let, me, let me remind you of the, the background on the story of the churches at Galatia, the region of Galatia. Paul has ministered there. He ministered there in Acts chapter 14 on his first missionary journey. During that, uh, that time, he, there were great signs and wonders. The healings took place. Whole cities turned out to hear, from, hear them preach about Jesus and so forth. But after he left, the Jews came in behind him and started teaching the people that Jesus is fine, making Jesus your Lord and Savior is fine, but you still need to keep the law of Moses. And so everything that Paul wrote back to the Galatians is, how could you be so stupid? You didn't get saved through the law. Why would you try to add the law to, to the faith in Jesus that got you saved and got your spirit filled to begin with. How is that going to add anything to you? How is doing anything in the flesh going to add to you when only you can only receive from God by faith in the Holy Ghost? That's the point. That's what he's saying about the whole thing. So with that in mind in Galatians chapter 4. Notice what he says in verse 19. 
He says, my little children, meaning they're saved. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again. Again means more than once, doesn't it? Again means at least the second time, doesn't it? My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm praying just as hard. I'm exerting just the same spiritual intensity, just the same spiritual effort for you to grow in the things of God and to be established in who you are that I prayed for you to get saved to begin with. So let me ask you a question. When he prayed for them when they were unsaved, what kind of prayer was it? Intercession. What kind of prayer is it now that he's praying for them to grow in the things of God and to be established? Supplication. What's the difference that Paul identifies in in supplication and intercession? Well, there seems to be the same in intensity. He doesn't say, boy, I'm praying for you now, but it's not anything like I prayed before you got saved. He seems to indicate through the words that he uses, he seems to indicate that it's the same kind of prayer, same intensity of prayer. When I say kind of prayer, I mean the same prayer. From the outside, you and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference if we didn't know who he was praying for. We wouldn't be able to see that he was praying hard for him to get saved, but then praying lightly or easily for him afterwards. No, Paul said the thing that came upon him daily, the greatest burden he had through all the persecution that he experienced was the care of the churches. Paul seems to put a great priority, a great importance on the prayer and the kind of prayer and the intensity of prayer that he prays for these people to grow in the things of God so they don't get turned away, so that they don't listen to people that are telling them lies like the Jews were. So they don't get caught up in natural things, but stay on the path to mature in the things of God, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. So from the outward appearance, you or I wouldn't be able to tell. Paul knew, perhaps. He knew when he was praying for them. He knew when he was praying before he got there for them to get saved. He would know that because he was the one that was being led by the Holy Ghost in prayer. But it seems that supplication and intercession are are equal in intensity Equal in the type of praying that God would lead you to do. Maybe including groanings. Somehow, some type of utterance. But intensity seems to be the characteristic. And the only difference there would be is whether or not you're praying for people that are saved. Or people that aren't saved. Are you out there? Okay, let me close with a story. I'll, uh, I'll finish some of this next week. I don't want to give you too much and, and uh, create more problems or questions than I give answers for. But let me, uh, let me explain something to you. I, I, I don't know nearly as much about intercession as I want to know or will know. Let me just say that right up front. And I think I know why. This is not something God's told me. But this is, um, well, for lack of a better term, this is what I've got figured out. You decide for yourself. Someone that would be used or called to the office of an evangelist or even a pastor that had an evangelistic thrust... Or, or that would be the major part of his ministry. It would seem to me that God would use them in intercession a lot more than somebody that's not an evangelist or a pastor that's used in the area of teaching more than evangelism. Wouldn't that make sense? You're afraid to say anything, aren't you? Well, it seems to me that it would work that way. That just seems to make sense. I mean, why would God not give a greater emphasis to praying for the loss for somebody whose, real, whose heart, because of the anointing that was on them, because of the call of God that was on their life, that their, their, their ministry or their, their, uh, um, their number one main thing, main area of ministry would be to the lost. Now, I don't know this for sure because I don't have a whole lot of friends that are, that are evangelist types 
that I can say, how much intercession do you make for the lost before you give altar calls? I, I really don't have any way to check this out. Maybe someday I will be able to. But it just seems to make sense that God would use people that have a special call upon them or a, a greater anointing in one area of evangelism, the area of evangelism, than somebody that doesn't. And I don't have that. God uses me in, in, uh, in teaching and, and, and that type of thing. And I realize the vast majority of people that I'm going to minister to are already saved. People that are hungry for the word. But there have been a couple of occasions. I'll tell you one. About three years ago, there was, um, uh, I was praying. It was a Saturday evening and I was home by myself. And uh, I don't know where everybody else was, but I was off by myself. And so um, I just started praying. And I'm, I'm, I try not to do a whole lot on Saturdays so that I can be available to, to just be quiet and hear from God and just get ready for the services. It doesn't always work that way, and I can't always control it. But when I can, I like to. But uh, since I was by myself, I just had an impression to pray. And so I just started walking around the house praying, minding my own business. It wasn't a real intense, hard and heavy-duty type thing, but I'm just praying. But while I was praying, I'd probably been praying 20, 25 minutes in other tongues, something like that. Didn't know what I was praying about. Didn't have anything that I was trying to direct my prayer toward. I just felt impressed to pray. Well, after about 20 or 25 minutes, I would guess, a real burden to pray came upon me. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have any direction from God about it. But I mean, I stopped walking around and I just knelt down and I just prayed hot and heavy for about 35 or 40 minutes. I prayed and that intensity continued for um, uh, for that period of time, whatever period of time it was, that's just a guess. I really didn't look at the clock before or after too much, so I don't really know for sure. But for that period of time, I mean, it was a real intense kind of prayer. And so I stayed with it, as you should in supplication or intercession, either one. I stayed with it until I got a note of victory. Now, the note of victory doesn't always, especially where supplication is concerned, doesn't always mean that the problem is solved and that's it. You'll never pray about that again. Sometimes it just means, okay, that's as far as we'll go today. But for intercession, I think it's a little bit different. But then I, I may be limited by my experience on that too. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, I know that whenever I can, I stay with it till there's a note of victory. So I did. I stayed with it until I got a note of victory on the thing. And I just started praising God. I just said, thank you, Lord, whatever that was. I thank you that it's done. I thank you, Lord, that you're working things out. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me utterance to pray whatever I was praying about. And then all of a sudden, just as quick as a flash, I saw myself in the service I assumed it was the next morning. I didn't know that for sure. But I saw myself in the service, and I saw there was a gentleman sitting over here in a plaid shirt about halfway back. And I saw him lifting his hands. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see myself doing anything. I just saw myself from this uh, perspective, from this position. And I saw him lift his hands, so I assumed that that meant that he had responded to an altar call. The next thing I saw was him get up out of his chair, walk over out uh, out the doors. I assumed that meant he was going to the prayer room. So I assumed I didn't have any direction. I didn't have the Lord speak to me. I didn't have anything else to know for sure. But I assumed, well, I need to give an altar call tomorrow morning because this guy needs to get saved. Well, I was looking for him. By the time I took the service, I had him spotted. He was right there. They came in a little bit late. But by the time I got up to the to the uh, pulpit and started ministering, I had him picked out. I, I'm watching him the whole time. I'm trying not to stare at him the whole service because he's wearing just what I saw him wear. Had that plaid shirt on. So at the end of the service, I gave an altar call. There were five people that responded to the altar call. Didn't see any of that. I just saw him. And all five of them got up at the end of the service and went to the prayer room. 
And I thought, well, okay, praise the Lord. I asked somebody at the prayer room uh, that was conducting the prayer room. I asked them afterwards. I said, everybody get what they came for? And they said, yeah, that guy in the plaid shirt, did you notice him? And I said, yeah, I did. What about him? He said, well, he had never been to church before. He came with his sister. Never been to church before. The guy looked like he was in his mid-30s. Something thereabouts, I guess. Never been to church before. And his sister had been after him to come to church. He, she had been watching us on TV. For the last year or so, they lived somewhere up in L.A. or just short of L.A., something like that. So it was, wasn't a situation where she had ever been before either. But they decided to drive down since he was out visiting. And so he just gave his heart to the Lord. Well, I thought, okay, great. Praise the Lord. And I thought, isn't that interesting that the Holy Ghost would have me pray about this guy? I mean, I wouldn't know. I don't even know who's watching. Much less who's going to come to church tomorrow. Much less who's visiting from out of town has never been to church before. Who's going to know any of that kind of stuff? Only the Holy Ghost. Well, here's the other end of the story. About a week later, I got a phone call. And it turned out that it was this lady. She looked us up in the phone book and um, uh, just took a chance on trying to get a hold of me. They wouldn't give, me, give her my number at the office. And so she just kind of ran it down and hit up on it. And uh, uh, so she said, she uh, asked if she could talk to me, asked if I was Pastor Mike of Foothill Family Church and yada, yada, yada. I told her yes. And so when she identified, you know, figured out that it was me, she told me the story. She said, I, you don't know me, but we've been watching you on TV for the last year or so. And my brother came to church with me for the first time last Sunday morning and went to the prayer room. And I said, yeah, he was wearing a plaid shirt. She said, you know him? And I said, yeah, I prayed for him. She said, what do you mean? So I told her what had happened the day before. She, she broke down. She started crying. She said, Pastor Mike, he was killed this week in an auto accident. She said he's been struggling all of his life with drugs and alcohol. She said he wouldn't go to church with the family. He wouldn't have anything to do with God, wouldn't have anything to do with church. But he was out here visiting with us. She said he left to go back late Sunday night, flew out from L.A., back to the Midwest, where, wherever he was from in the Midwest, She said, he came to church. She said, his life, Sunday afternoon, was the best time that we've ever spent together in the entirety of our lives because he got saved. He knew he got saved. He was so happy. He was so thrilled. But then later on, three or four days later, when he got back home, there was a drunk driver that came across the road, hit him head on and killed him. He was the only one in the car, killed him instantly. Now, folks, I got a lot of questions about this. Why didn't God, after he got saved, why didn't God impress upon me by the Holy Ghost to make supplication for him to change it? Anybody got an answer for that one? I don't. Maybe it was something that couldn't be changed. I don't know. I do know this, though. I know for somebody that has struggled all their lives with alcohol and drugs, to be able to spend the last few days of their life in the presence of God, knowing the forgiveness of God, and enter into the gates of heaven that way. What a wonderful way to go home. Now, we can turn this on the negative or we can turn it on the positive. A lot of questions about, well, why did God let that happen? Now that he's a child of God, isn't there something that could have been done? I don't have any of those answers, and nobody else does either. Or we could look at it on the positive side. Only the Holy Ghost knew that he was in a position to receive. And he worked in a supernatural way. Who knows if we were able to see the spiritual forces 
taking place and, and, and working against somebody in their lives, this guy in his life, who knows what spiritual forces were beaten back by intercession that can only be given by the Holy Ghost. So that that guy was in a position to enter into the gates of heaven. No wonder Paul said, put first things first. He talked to the church about prayers and supplications and thanksgiving. But he talked about to the world, regarding the world, he said prayers, supplications, thanksgiving, and intercessions. We need to be ready to be used however the Holy Ghost wants to use us. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege to be used by the Holy Ghost as he sees fit. Not according to our plan, but according to yours. Holy Spirit, we ask you to take hold together with us to make intercession for the unsaved and to make supplication for those that are believers. Either way, we bind ourselves to you, Father, by the work and the will of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the greater one. Thank you for the marvelous work that you do to help us intercede for the lost and to make supplication for the saints. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.